Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the end, beautiful friend. Washington. Shit. I'm still only in Washington. Every time I think I'm going to wake back up on the set of The Apprentice. When I was at Mar-a-Lago after the inauguration, it was worse. I'd wake up in the morning... And there'd be nothing. I hardly said a word to my wife until I said yes to the divorce. When I was in D.C., I wanted to be at Mar-a-Lago. When I was there, all I could think of was getting back to Trump Tower and calling in the Fox and Friends. Maybe Sean Hannity. I've been here three weeks now. Waiting for a mission. Getting softer. Smaller. Every minute I stay in the Oval Office, I get weaker. And every time... Some moron on Twitter calls me fuckface Von Clownstick. He gets stronger. I call my own shots, mostly on the accumulation of data. Each time I watch fake news, CNN, the walls move in a little tighter. Everyone gets everything he wants. I wanted a mission. And for my sins, they gave me one. Brought it up like room service with a taco bowl. It was a real choice mission. And when it was over, I'd never want another. Believe me. This is Intercepted.
I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is Episode 3 of Intercepted. Well, we are not even a month into Donald Trump's reign, and we're getting reports that the White House has become a strange, dystopic land of empty corridors, scores of unfilled positions in the West Wing and elsewhere, visitors wandering around after their meetings, not able to find the exit. When Trump is not lounging around in his bathrobe, watching television. I don't think the president owns a bathrobe. Definitely doesn't wear one. Or on Twitter, denouncing the so-called federal judge who ruled against his not-Muslim ban, Muslim ban. It's common sense. You know, some things are law, and I'm all in favor of that. And some things are common sense. This is common sense. Trump has continued on a strangely schizophrenic policy agenda. Now, on some policies, such as the building or expansion of Israeli settlements, he now seems to be veering toward Obama's policies, which he'll probably try to say, oh, well, this was my policy all along. His administration claims to be uh, backing off of the pledge to uh, relaunch or reconstitute CIA black sites where a lot of uh, torture happened under the Bush-Cheney regime. Trump uh, also, uh, from his Twitter feed, and these attacks on the federal judge seems to actually not understand Uh, how the federal government works, the system of checks and balances, the fact that we have uh, three branches of government. Talking about the government and how it's arranged, divided in three like a circus. Trump also has been very active on the military uh, front in some ways. At a dinner last week with uh, some of his top advisors, including uh, former head of Breitbart News, Steve Bannon, who now is on the National Security Council, and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, a a famed warrior with uh, decades of military experience. Wrong. Trump authorized his first uh, known covert action, uh, and that was this disastrous raid in Yemen. Uh, And of course, we know that one Navy SEAL was killed. Several other uh, U.S. service members were, were wounded, and more than a dozen women and children were killed. This was a very, very well thought out and executed uh, effort. And one of the more serious things that that happened in recent days is that Trump sent his national security advisor, General Michael Flynn, out to speak to uh, the White House press corps. And and Flynn basically, in in a kind of scene reminiscent of Al Haig saying, I'm in charge, Flynn basically took us to the brink of, of, uh, of a war with Iran. As of today, we are officially putting Iran on notice. Thank you. Just before the Super Bowl last Sunday, uh, the world witnessed the latest chapter of Donald Trump says something bluntly accurate about the United States' role in the world, just as he did with his critique of the U.S. invasion of Iraq during the election campaign. uh, Trump, in this big pumped-up special that Fox News was doing, um, spoke to Bill O'Reilly. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Well, you think our country's so innocent? You think our country's so innocent? I don't know of any government leaders that are killers in America. Well, take a look at what we've done, too. We've made a lot of mistakes. I've been against the war in Iraq from the beginning. Yeah, mistakes are different then. A lot of mistakes, okay, but a lot of people were killed. So a lot of right. killers around, believe me. Now, I will give Trump credit. Trump is right about U.S. hypocrisy and, and the U.S. record of mass killings and killing innocent people. But this is similar to Trump's opposition to the Iraq war. Uh, Trump, yes, he condemned it. Uh, He, although his record is a little bit cloudy on when he condemned it and how much he condemned it, but he did condemn it uh, during the campaign. 
Uh, but now he's saying, oh, well, we should go back into Iraq and take its oil by force. Well, we should have kept the oil when we got out. And, you know, it's very interesting. Had we taken the oil, you wouldn't have ISIS. And his comments to Bill O'Reilly about the U.S. Uh, this time around, they, they were right, historically accurate. But they were offered in defense of his relationship with Vladimir Putin, who is indisputably a, a thug and a murderer. While the Trump carnival plays out on Twitter and on Fox News and at the White House press briefings and on Saturday Night Live. You said ban. You said ban. Now I'm saying it The back president to you. tweeted, and I quote, yeah. if the ban were announced with a one week notice. Yeah, exactly. You just said that. He's quoting you. It's your words. He's using your words. When you use the words and he uses them back, it's circular using of the word, and that's from you. The more important story is actually happening behind the scenes. And it's not on Trump's Facebook page, and it's not on his Twitter feed, and it's not coming out of some thought that popped into his head while he's laying around in his bathrobe. It's who Donald Trump has tapped to run the vast national security apparatus, the U.S. war machine. To discuss this, I'm joined by journalist Alan Nairn. Alan is one of the best investigative journalists in modern U.S. history. When I first got into journalism, he was uh, one of my role models. Um, since the 1980s, Alan has investigated CIA-backed death squads in uh, Guatemala and El Salvador. He exposed the CIA's uh, death squad uh, in, in Haiti in 1994, uh, Alan also survived, along with Amy Goodman of Democracy Now!, uh, a massacre in uh, East Timor in 1991 at the hands of U.S.-backed Indonesian forces. The Indonesian army converged in two places. Hundreds and hundreds of troops. Some 270 East Timorese uh, were gunned down, and Alan had his skull uh, split open by Indonesian troops wielding U.S.-supplied uh, M16 rifles. Um, Allen has regularly exposed the CIA's role in the killing of civilians and in crushing popular movements. Allen, let's let's begin with uh, looking at who Trump has tapped. What's your analysis of who these people are and how it's going to impact uh, U.S. policy? Well, the idea that Trump is more peaceful, a maverick, it's just nonsense. His team consists of old establishment killers and, and neocons and some conspiracy nuts. General Mattis, his secretary of defense, was invited to speak at both the Democratic and Republican conventions. He was the preferred candidate for president of Bill Kristol's uh, Never Trump uh, movement. He decided not to take uh, the plunge. Rex Tillerson, the secretary of state, is a virtual protege of Jim Baker, the co-chair of the, the Bush establishment. Vice President Mike Pence was the point man in the House for Dick Cheney, who endorsed Trump. Pence was Cheney's point man in the House on both uh, Iraq and the Patriot Act. And then you have General Flynn and uh, Pompeo, who were rabid right-wing partisans, uh, conspiracy nuts. Flynn is a bitter, harsh critic of Obama. But his criticism is that Obama didn't do enough assassinations. Obama dropped more than 100,000 bombs and missiles. Uh, that wasn't enough uh, for Flynn. 
And Pompeo comes from a similar angle. You know, he wants unbridled surveillance. He wants a domestic, massive database on Americans. Uh, he wants to expand Guantanamo. He wants more torture. If necessary, he wants to uh, rewrite the Army Field Manual, which would allow more torture, not just uh, by the CIA, which use it as a guideline, but also within the Army and the Armed Forces uh, as a whole. When Trump talks about working together with Russia to fight terrorism, that means more operations, more violence, and probably more significantly, the Trump people want to rip off the constraints. Uh, they want to adopt essentially the, uh, the Russian uh, Grozny rules, uh, which essentially says kill them all and kill their families too. General Flynn in particular is a great admirer of that. And General Mattis became famous in the military for his open advocacy of killing. Uh, he has a whole string of very colorful quotes where he talks with great gusto about how how wonderful it is to kill. Yeah, it's fun to shoot some people. Yeah, and in particular, as an illustration of his approach, he presided over the uh, Mukharadi wedding party massacre uh, in Iraq up near the border with uh, Syria in 2004, in which more than 40 people were uh, civilians at a wedding party, uh, were, were massacred by uh, his U.S. forces. And when he was asked about it, he was unapologetic. Uh, he was asked, how long did you deliberate before ordering the attack? He said 30 seconds. So the idea that this is a shift in a less, and, and you could go on that list, in, in some kind of less bloody direction, is just not accurate. Is there really, in your view, uh, a rift between Trump and the CIA, uh, the likes of which is just nonstop being pushed by the Democrats and on television? No, not on significant matters. Uh, there certainly is on the emotional level. There are tremendous hurt feelings. The CIA people are furious. Nobody likes to be called the, compared to the Nazis. But uh, on basic matters of policy, uh, whether you're allowed to kill uh, civilians, uh, whether aggressive, uh, not legally sanctioned uh, actions in foreign countries are uh, permitted, they're in complete agreement. It's ironic that Trump is making this... Uh, move of entente with uh, with Russia at the moment uh, when Russia has temporarily surpassed the U.S. Uh, because of their operations in Syria as the number one mass killer of civilians in the world. Uh, I mean, for decades, the U.S. has clearly and unambiguously held that title because of all the paramilitary and regular army and intelligence forces around the world that the U.S. supports who kill civilians. But now, because of what Russia has done on the side of uh, Assad in Syria and with their own direct bombing operations, uh, which indiscriminately uh, crush civilians, uh, they have clearly surpassed the U.S. As the, as the number one mass killer at this moment. But you have to keep your eye on the hard facts. And the hard facts are that Trump is clearly going to continue the U.S. policy of being willing to kill uh, civilians. And uh, if anything, his alliance with uh, Russia will only make that worse. Given that you've spent uh, basically your entire adult life uh, pursuing the CIA and its clients, pursuing generals and war criminals and paramilitaries, what do you say to people who are who who, who seem to be now promoting the idea that the CIA that they're the good guys? You shouldn't be defending people who kill civilians. The liberal and, and democratic shift away from probing criticism of the U.S. military and, and, and the CIA started years ago. It started in the 80s, really. And for 
for just tactical political reasons, they decided to start celebrating uh, the military and, and the intelligence agencies. And now it's, it's, it's reached this uh, uh, really absurd point where, for one thing, they're making a differentiation between Trump and the intelligence agencies when on matters of substance there is none. And for another, they're holding these uh, agencies which systematically uh, commit crimes against uh, defenseless civilians uh, up as paragons. And it's it's just nuts. And, you know, I think one of many reasons why Trump was able to, to break through uh, politically, in addition to his being a master propagandist and a, a master liar, I mean, he, he ranks with the master propagandists of history, with, with Goebbels, with Bernays, with Roger Ailes. I mean, he's up in that, uh, he's up in that pantheon. But one reason was that he would occasionally blurt out truths that, that hit home with people. Like when in the Republican debate, he stood up and started denouncing the invasion of Iraq and saying it was uh, based on lies. We now have this situation where some people think that Trump is, is, is somehow going to shake up the system for the better. And all indications are that he's going to shake it up for the, for the worse, because this is really uh, the most radical elements of the oligarchy, kind of the, the criminal fringe of the, of the U.S. oligarchy, the, the crudest criminal fringe uh, embodied in Trump himself and his old uh, associates taking over the government. And they're basically unconstrained. They will be especially unconstrained two years from now if uh, they're willing, they're able to win a veto-proof Senate majority, which they may well because it just so happens there are many more Democratic seats exposed than there are Republican seats in that Senate election. And if he succeeds in getting in first his, his, his new Supreme Court nominee to replace Scalia, which will restore the old balance, which will put Kennedy in the driver's seat in the Supreme Court. But then if he gets a second Supreme Court nomination... And I predict that in short order, they're going to start a massive campaign against Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, attacking her as old, crazy, uh, infirm, has to be moved off the bench. Remember years ago, there was the rightist campaign to impeach Justice Douglas. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see a similar move made against uh, Bader Ginsburg. When Trump chose Mike Pence, uh, you know, I've I've been looking at Pence for a, a number of years. Some of the things that came to my mind were Pence's incredible proximity to Dick Cheney, um, right. his relationship with uh, the neocons and with the the real career lifer uh, power brokers uh, like Cheney and Rumsfeld, who really sought out on one of their life's missions, uh, which was to create a dictatorship of the executive branch when it came to counterterrorism policy, foreign policy, military policy, CIA. They wanted nothing to do with oversight from the uh, the Congress. When you heard that Mike Pence was selected as Trump's running mate, what message do, do you think that was sending to the establishment in the national security apparatus and within the broader Republican Party? Well, I think the message was, don't worry, I'm one of you. Uh, appearances to the contrary and insults to well, the I'd contrary. Well, I'd like to know the story of how this happened because I, I, I don't think it was, you know, Trump went through a Rolodex and said, oh, let's get my buddy Mike Pence here. It, it seemed to me like there was a deal made where this is your running mate because uh, I, I don't think I don't think Trump even knew knew much about Mike Pence at all before. Well, this. you know who knows how it came about. There's always very complex bargaining involved in these things, and there are all these reports saying at the last minute Trump had regrets and wanted to pick uh, Chris Christie, who was kind of his buddy. But Trump dragged the the ultra right oligarchs kicking and screaming into power. 
they could never win an election on their own. Paul Ryan is never going to be elected uh, president on his platform of destroying Social Security and, uh, and Medicare and all programs uh, uh, for the poor. That's, that's a loser. So in order to implement their program, they need a degree of popular support. And Trump uh, provided that, but he provided that in ways uh, that weren't entirely to their liking. Uh, for example, they had to sacrifice uh, the TPP. It was a painful but lucrative bargain for them because, uh, yes, that, hurt, that hurts their interest to an important extent, but they get even more back in massive corporate and uh, estate and uh, personal income tax cuts and in a massive wiping away of environmental, uh, labor, consumer protection, anti-discrimination, financial uh, regulations. Uh, it's a huge net plus for the corporate class. Trump was constantly denouncing the rigging of the system. His basic message was, the system's rigged, our, our system is a killer system, and it's corrupt. All of which is uh, true, uh, except the rigging took place in the opposite direction, which he portrayed. But it's uncomfortable for the establishment types to to hear that, especially coming out of the mouth of their own candidate. And Pence was, you know, a bit of a reassurance to them, I think, that uh, don't worry, uh, it's going to be OK. You, you, you have your inside man. And you see as he's picking his cabinet, uh, there's no one, absolutely no one in there who clashes with their uh, program. What about Trump's relationship with uh, the heads of state of other nations? Specifically, I'm referring to the the longstanding uh, U.S. system of of client states um, around the world. You know, one of the first things they did was to uh, throw their support, the Trump administration, behind uh, General Sisi um, in in Egypt. Uh, what what do you see happening with uh, the Trump administration's relationship with? some of these key client states around the world. Part of Trump's attack on the existing world order, the, the order that was created uh, by the U.S. Uh, in the wake of, of World War II, Trump attacks that whole world order. But he attacks it because, uh, in his view, it's not harsh enough. Uh, it's not uh, repressive enough. Trump says that the U.S. is being ripped off by its clients, by its satellite states, uh, by its allies. So he wants to uh, impose even harsher exploitation. In Jerusalem, uh, Trump is talking about uh, moving the U.S. Uh, uh, embassy there, uh, a move that is not going to go unanswered uh, by the Palestinians uh, in the street. Trump is, is moving toward a, a system where force is used uh, more directly. When it comes to repressive rulers like al-Sisi of Egypt and uh, uh, Duterte, who's... Uh, democratically elected, but who got elected on a death squad platform and his, and he and his forces have so far murdered uh, thousands of people. What we can expect to see is that forces like this, death squad forces, re repressive militaries, repressive paramilitaries, which have been backed for many decades by the U.S. The U.S. Has, has already been backing these forces. The U.S. will continue backing these forces, but without constraint. Now, with Trump, I don't think the reaction among the worldwide killer forces has been that immediate, partly because around the world, a lot of people are a little confused about Trump. But as it becomes clear, as people like Pompeo and Flynn uh, and Mattis uh, go into uh, action, uh, I think we'll see a similar uh, increase of killings uh, by local death squad and military and paramilitary forces, uh, just because they feel unconstrained, just because they feel 
the uh, support from Washington uh, as opposed to what has been the traditional U.S. posture for a number of years, which is give them weapons and training with one hand, but admonish them with the other. Uh, the Obama administration was helping uh, Saudi Arabia, the, the actual U.S. personnel there, helping them with targeting of their bombing runs, uh, where they were hitting one Yemeni civilian target uh, after uh, another. And, uh, and refueling the Saudi yeah, planes. and refueling, yeah. and it was U.S. munitions and U.S. planes and- Cluster uh, bombs. Uh, in, you know, in this mass slaughter operation. But as- some of the worst atrocities got publicity. Uh, the Obama administration felt compelled to pull back uh, some of the advisors and to you know, issue critical uh, statements, even though the flow of, of military aid w- was never completely stopped. It was just temporarily cut back. Now that- well, the, the audacity of Samantha Power, you know, who was Obama's uh, UN, ambassador to the UN, I mean, the, the, the kind of gall to, to stand there and denounce the war crimes that are being committed with the full support of the United States. It's, it's, I mean, it's not stunning, uh, but it, it is, it's, it's just a dripping blood of hypocrisy. Yeah. Uh, but hypocrisy has a certain virtue and that is at least it's advancing or acknowledging and to a certain extent advancing some good values. Uh, uh, well, that's kind of a metaphor for the entire Obama uh, time in office. Well, the, the whole the recent path of the U.S. establishment because some constraints have been imposed on them by popular pressure, by uh, human rights uh, activism. So uh, they feel obliged to say publicly, yes, killing civilians is a bad thing, but under the table, here are some guns uh, and, and we see you killed a thousand civilians last month. Okay, here's some more guns. Maybe try to be a little more careful. It, it's been that mixed stance and that kind of mixed stance is something that uh, local generals sometimes find uh, infuriating, uh, but even more significantly, it's something that they find they can exploit politically. So you have these officers standing up and demagogically denouncing the United States because the United States is criticizing them on human rights grounds, even though they're pocketing uh, one U.S. weapons shipment after another, and they're all going to Fort Benning and Fort Bragg for their training, and they have CIA personnel uh, sitting in their intelligence uh, centers helping them uh, with their uh, operations. But the Trump people clearly favor an approach uh, which strips away the, the hypocrisy and more in a more straightforward fashion says, support our uh, friends like LCC, like uh, uh, Duterte. And what de facto that means is a full speed ahead on the killing without constraint. All right, Alan, thank you very much for being with us. You're welcome. Alan Nairn is an investigative journalist. His website is News and Comment. It can be found at alannairn.org. I'm establishing new vetting measures to keep radical Islamic terrorists out of the United States of America. We don't want them here. Donald Trump has been signing executive orders like bad checks. And much to our disappointment, the definitive source for all things law and history, that is Donald Trump's Twitter feed, it didn't provide us with any insight into the veracity of these little presidential grenades. 
So we asked Intercepted's distinguished alt historian, John Schwartz, to educate us on the roots of this mysterious, yet often used, presidential prerogative. You're a concerned citizen. So recently you've been wondering, maybe for the first time ever, what are presidential executive orders? Given that we've learned they can change the lives of thousands of people in one second, you might not be happy to find out that the answer is, no one really knows. The Congressional Research Service, it's their job to tell Congress about the history of the United States, says about executive orders that the term has no exact meaning. That's because executive orders are not defined in the Constitution, and also, there is no specific provision in the Constitution authorizing them. So therefore, the Congressional Research Service says, ambiguity behind executive orders poses a great concern for Congress and the public. Okay. So all we really have is 200 years of presidents issuing executive orders and seeing if the other two branches of government, which means Congress and courts, will let them get away with it. Every single president has come up with at least a few executive orders, with only one exception, which was William Henry Harrison, America's ninth president elected in 1840. But he probably also would have signed some if he hadn't, after exactly one month in office, died. Executive orders can be extremely good. The Emancipation Proclamation was an executive order from Lincoln. Harry Truman used an executive order to abolish racial discrimination in the military. Executive orders can also be extremely bad. FDR used an executive order to create the legal authority for the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our West Coast became a potential combat zone. Truman used another executive order at the start of the Cold War to create loyalty tests for government employees, which was really the birth of McCarthyism. The thing that the American people can do is to be vigilant day and night to make sure they don't have communists teaching the sons and daughters of America. If you look at modern executive orders, you'll see that presidents claim their authority is based on two things. First is Article 2 of the Constitution, which gives them executive power and requires that they take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And then a claim that they are, in fact, executing some specific law passed by Congress. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In the case of Donald Trump's executive order shutting the door temporarily or 
maybe otherwise, on refugees and immigrants from seven countries. It was the Immigration and Nationality Act. It's not a Muslim ban, but we were totally prepared. It's working out very nicely. You see it at the airports. You see it all over. It's working out very nicely. And we're going to have a very, very strict ban, and we're going to have extreme vetting. If you don't like what Trump did, the good news is that the Supreme Court has famously said about executive orders that when the president takes measures incompatible with the expressed or implied will of Congress, his power is at its lowest ebb. And it looks like that's what Trump was doing here because the law he cited bans discriminating among immigrants on the basis of a person's place of birth or place of residence. Also, whoever it was who wrote this executive order was super, super incompetent because the executive order probably violated a 1962 executive order about how you produce executive orders. So it's possible courts will strike down parts of it or maybe all of it. And Congress might, might also try to take back some of the power they've given the executive branch. But really, the only way that will happen is if Democrats ever have a majority again while a Republican is president. Congressional Democrats have never been interested in taking back power from the president if the president's a Democrat. And just in general, don't be discouraged. Scientists now believe that William Henry Harrison, the president with no executive orders, died because there was no sewage system at the time in Washington. This meant that a few blocks upstream of the White House water supply, there was, as the New York Times puts it, a field of human excrement. This gave Harrison typhoid fever. And then the same swamp probably also killed another president, Zachary Taylor, just nine years later in 1850. So never let anyone tell you that regular people don't have any power. That was The Intercept's John Schwartz. Coming up, we're going to talk to Princeton University professor Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Stay with us. You raped my grandma, you went my grandpa. A century goes by, you became a street cop. My parents shared crop, but you didn't share. Cause I don't have blue eyes and long blonde hair. The red, white, and blue reeks like an onion. I praise John Henry, you love Paul Bunyan. So brothers and sisters, beware of who you trust. Cause they don't want justice, they want just us. All right, folks, you're going to hear this, you're going to hear it once. You're going to hear this, you're going to hear it once. All right, folks, you're going to hear it once. All lives matter. All lives matter. Okay, we're back and you're listening to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. And that was the president, Donald Trump, being disrupted by Black Lives Matter activists when he was running for president. And he did not like that. Orange is the new anti-black. You know, in figuring out what to do this week on the show, it was like going through a catalog of fucking horrors. We could go down the line. His atrocious billionaire Christian supremacist education secretary, Betsy DeVos, his Muslim ban, uh, 
his ridiculous allegation that uh, news organizations are somehow covering up terror attacks even as journalists die in record numbers. It's a veritable cornucopia of sad lies and pathetic memes that are not even worthy of Twitter. In this horrid ocean of terror, I decided to sit down with the brilliant Princeton professor, Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Now, she's an unapologetic socialist, she's an activist, and she's the author of an urgent book called From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Now, I've, I've known Kianga for several years, and I remember how we both witnessed the air being sucked out of the anti-war and anti-corporate globalization room in the 2004 election when George W. Bush defeated John Kerry and served a second term. But we both regrouped, and we jumped right back into the struggle. Kianga and I sat down and discussed the Trump moment, the Obama legacy, the politics of resistance, and the failures of the Democratic Party. In the last 40 years, when we look at the increasing uh, conservative posture um, of the Democrats, at the heart of that is the way that they take for granted the votes of uh, their base, whether that's black people, whether that's working class women, uh, working class people in general, students. They take that for granted um, and, and consistently try to appeal uh, to more right-wing forces um, in the country and do nothing to appeal to the people who are actually turning out um, to and uh, in, in voting for them. And so the 2004 election um, was certainly perhaps a low point. I mean, to lose to, to George W. Bush. Um, but then, you know, when you think that you've hit the bottom, that, that you could actually lose an election to the dithering idiocy of Donald Trump, um, it, it really, it should be a soul-searching moment for, for what that party is, but uh, it doesn't actually appear to be. Well, then, uh, then four years after that, uh, you have Barack Obama, who ran on a pledge to uh, operate the most transparent administration in history. Uh, this was the first black person elected as president of the United States. And uh, I, to this day, a lot of people, when you when you get into arguments with them about policy and how did we get here and look at the drone program and look at, at, at the, the, you know, uh, uh, war on black people in cities throughout this country, people say, oh, well, you know, well, Ob- Ob- that wasn't Obama. Uh, and there's still this, I think, idolizing of the Obama era, particularly within these liberal circles in the United States? Well, I think that we get completely consumed in the the symbolism of Barack Obama and ignore his record and ignore the actual history of his candidacy. And so I wrote the book in large part as a way to understand the meaning of Barack Obama's presidency, really beginning with the question of how do we explain the emergence of this black social movement, the sort of longest, most enduring black social movement really since the 1960s and 70s with a black president and with the the highest concentration of black political power in American history. So not just the black president, but the black attorney general. And part of it was 
understanding the way that Obama sort of raised the expectations of African-Americans in a very cultivated way. I mean, people now say, well, you know, we shouldn't have expected too much and, and that was unrealistic and he never could have met those expectations when during 2007, in 2008, it was David Axelrod and Obama who were stoking those expectations, who transformed his campaign because uh, African-Americans originally were much more supportive of, of Hillary Clinton. Barack Obama was someone that people didn't know uh, and were not familiar with. And he transformed. He was smart enough to understand if he could transform his campaign to make it seem insurgent, to make it seem as if it were a movement from below that was disrupting the status quo, that he could get people uh, to come along with him. And he did this. I mean, I had never heard a mainstream Democratic Party uh, candidate, you know, give speeches where he's talking about the abolitionist movement. He's talking about sit-down strikes um, in the 1930s. He invoked the Stonewall Rebellion in the, the 1960s. And then, of course, the the civil rights movement and sort of described his campaign as the the logical conclusion of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. So there was a great effort in uh, raising the expectations of people. And so I think that for um, millions of African-Americans who mobilized to vote for Obama in ways that were historically unprecedented, believed that they were do something in return as any constituency does, who is a key factor in the the election of a president. And almost as soon as he got into office, uh, the sort of backsliding, the qualifications, the hemming, the hawing, there was no sort of 10 days that shook the world. There was no, you know, succession of executive orders and, and actually following through um, on anything. Instead, you know, when Obama actually did have a mandate in a way that there's nothing resembling that with Trump, he did absolutely nothing with it and instead uh, sort of wasted that opportunity to just step on the throat of the Republican Party and, and put them in a can and bury it in the backyard for a generation. He refused to do it. And we are now living with the consequences of that. What, what, what do you say to the not so uncommon line from democratic pundits or uh, policymakers or their surrogates on social media that people like you were part of the problem because you spent all this time bashing Hillary Clinton, you wouldn't come out and say, you know, people should be voting for her because she's the lesser of, uh, of of two evils. What would you say to people who say, well, then why weren't you fighting to get Hillary Clinton in instead of Donald Trump? Part of the the problem with that take, and I've, I've heard many different iterations of it, is that it doesn't actually account for why on a much broader level, people were so uninspired with Hillary Clinton. It's as if if a few people on the left had been sort of more excited about Hillary Clinton, then that would have somehow compensated for the tens of millions of people um, who weren't. And so it's important uh, to look at why that is. I think that uh, what people forget is that Hillary Clinton um, one had a record in that it did make uh, uh, an impact on a new generation of black activists who didn't know about the Clintons in the 1990s 
to discover this history of the particular role that the Clintons played in the rise of mass incarceration um, and the rise of law and order under a democratic regime. Um, That was a revelation to many uh, young people. And then when the tape came out with Hillary Clinton uh, calling young black people super predators. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. You know, there is a way in which the Democratic Party apparatus and the liberal establishment that hangs on to it just tried to dismiss that as another day and age, as if it were the 1930s and not the 1990s. And what I found most pernicious about that was that I don't think Hillary Clinton thought that. I don't think she thought young black people were predators. But Hillary Clinton stuck her finger in the wind in the 1990s and decided to make a political calculation that that would be politically expedient uh, to use that kind of language um, to describe young black people. And that's why she said it. And so I think that for people who have been chastising those of us on the left, I did not vote for Hillary Clinton. I've never voted for a Democrat and I never will, because I think that that is a party of war. It's a party uh, of the market. It's a party of poverty a party of police violence, of executions, and the death penalty, and I will never vote for it. I understand why people do, but I think that as long as the Democratic Party believes that they have your vote in their pocket, they'll continue to move and act in the same in the same ways. That is a deep problem with the politics and the orientation of the Democratic Party, which is a pro-capitalist, pro-market party in the United States. And so one of the questions that I ask in my book is whether or not this whole can black people be free in a country that has as its political, economic and moral ethos, uh, trenchant, you know, support of uh, free market capitalism. As Nancy Pelosi said the other night, we're capitalists, deal with it. Well, I thank you for your question, uh, but I have to say we're capitalists. And that's just the way it is. However, we do- I think there's a basic contradiction between what free marketers and the capitalism and black liberation or women's liberation or LGBTQ liberation or what liberation would look like for poor and working class people. I think that those two things are in dire conflict with each other. And so when you have a political party that is steeped in that system and loves it and does everything in its power to maintain and uphold it, then there's a basic contradiction in being able to come through for uh, the things that ordinary people need to maintain, let alone improve any standard or quality of life. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you something. So uh, the neo-Nazi Richard Spencer was punched twice. Um, and there's all these memes on uh, you can find on Twitter and no YouTube. No tears here. At, right. No tears uh, for you. Um, uh, Richard Spencer gets punched twice. Then you have this uh, uh, Breitbart acolyte, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, who you know is clearly trying to provoke people by going and speaking at these universities, recently speaking in Berkeley, and uh, Antifa activists and others 
go after uh, that uh, speech. We understand, though, that Ma- that Milo was was going to be calling out undocumented students, and so that's much more a complicated narrative than it's been out in the media. But I, I wanted to I wanted to get your take on this. There are people even on the left who are saying these anarchists are part of the problem. The people that are are, are setting fire and throwing these things or punching Richard Spencer that those people also have a right to free speech, even if we hate it. And punching Richard Spencer or torching something outside of a Milo Yiannopoulos speech is not helping the issue. What's your what's your take on on this kind of debate that we're having right now? Most of us support absolutely the right of uh, a free exchange of ideas, particularly on college campuses, even with people that you don't necessarily or don't agree with at all. So I think with Nazis, Nazi sympathizers, that it's a different ball game um, because what they are doing is not just going out to have a fruitful exchange or even an unfruitful exchange of, uh, of ideas. Uh, what they're actually trying to do is to recruit people to their cause. They are uh, trying to create an atmosphere of uh, fear and intimidation for anyone who is not a white heterosexual male who thinks like they do. I, I saw a, a brief documentary, um, it's like a CNN thing, where this trans woman made a really poignant point, which is that if Milo comes to, to campus and gives a talk, he's somewhere else the next day. Um, but the people who organized it, the people who came, the people who applauded, I have to sit next to in class. Um, and that's a problem because these are people who absolutely support violence. They, they support the uh, extermination of entire uh, uh, groups of people. And so I think in in that case that it's not just a simple matter of free speech, that it's really uh, not being naive and understanding what it, it is for fascist and Nazi sympathizers, what it is that they are actually trying to do. Now, in terms of um, black bloc tactics, I don't think that they're necessary and I don't think that they're particularly uh, helpful If we are trying to build a mass movement, which I believe is what we need to form um, a resistance to the Trump regime on many different uh, fronts, there's almost everyone is in the crosshairs, then we need a mass movement. And when you've got people who are whose main intent at a demonstration is to create property destruction, is to create a kind of violent spectacle that invites a confrontation with the police, then that in and of itself is necessarily limiting. It means that undocumented immigrants can't come on to that uh, demonstration. It means that many African-Americans can't come on to that demonstration. It means that people who want to bring their families can't come to the demonstration. And to me, that there there's something fundamentally wrong with that. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, we... Uh, should conflate that with police violence or see it as the same thing um, as the the tactics of the state, because that's not their intent. These are anti-capitalists who want to confront the system. Um, And I'm obviously very sympathetic with that. Uh, So they're not the same thing. But as a movement, 
as a left, I think that we have to say something about tactics that imperil the right for the vast majority of people uh, to freely participate in that movement. From your perspective, what should resistance and mobilizations and organizing look like under the Trump-Pence administration? So I think the first thing is that we have to start with an understanding and an analysis that all of these issues are connected. And so the whole kind of, you know, I have my issues over here and they're wholly separate and have nothing to do with your issues is insufficient and it's incorrect. Uh, For people who are concerned about police terrorism and police violence, that is not just a black issue. That is an issue that Latinos have to deal with. That is an issue that Arabs and Muslims uh, have to deal with. And we have to highlight uh, the ways in which those things are connected. The attack on women's rights is not just uh, an issue for middle-class white women who uh, were the majority at the Women's March in D.C. and around the country, but the attack on immigrants. This is a woman's issue. The attack on uh, low-wage workers is a woman's issue. Fifty-five percent of black workers make under $15 an hour in this country, and most of them are black women. Um, And so we have to see how all of these these uh, working class issues are women's issues. Um, and so I think the main thing is that we have to see how these issues are connected. And that is the basis upon which uh, we can build a broad movement. It has to be mass. It has to be broad. And there need to be easily identifiable entry points for people, for all these millions of people who are going to demonstrations. They need to know where it is that they can go locally to then get involved. So there are many different dimensions to this, but it will take all of them to be able uh, to create a resistance to the Trump regime. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, thank you very much. Thank you. Kianga Yamada-Taylor is a professor at Princeton University and author of the book From Black Lives Matter, to Black Liberation. Before we end today's show, we are going to go to a spoken word segment. And I just I just want to say this. Part of the reason why we're asking musicians and artists and others to contribute to this show is that when you live in times of authoritarian rule, one of the first things that ends up in the crosshairs is culture. And, and we believe firmly that artists and writers and dramatists and actors and musicians play a vital role in defending the integrity of who we are as human beings. And so for today's show, to end it, we turn to the incredible singer, Kimia Dawson. Many of you probably know her songs from the movie Juno. But how many of you knew that these were her politics? Here is Kimia Dawson. Jeremy, this is Kimia Dawson from The Uncluded and the Moldy Peaches. Thanks for having me. This song was written for black lives, black people who maybe aren't so shocked by where we're at right now because we've been targeted all along. 
but I also stand in support of the Muslims, Mexicans, Native Americans, immigrants, the LGBTQ community, people with disabilities, women, poor folks, children, and everyone else who's going to suffer greatly at the hands of this current administration. It's imperative that we all rise up together and resist and make noise. The song is called At the Seams. Left hands hold the leashes, and the right hands hold the torches, and the grandpas holding shotguns swing on porch swings hung on porches, and the grandmas in their gardens plant more seeds to cut their losses, and the poachers with the pooches and the nooses preheat crosses, and the pooches see the grandpas, and they bare their teeth and growl, while their owners turn their noses up like they smell something foul. And they fumble with their crosses, and they start to mumble curses, and they plot ways to get grandpas off of porches into hearses. But the grandpas on the porches are just scarecrows holding toys, and the grandmas in the gardens are paper mache decoys, while the real grandmas and grandpas are with all the girls and boys marching downtown to the city hall to make a lot of noise, saying, hands up. Don't shoot, I can't breathe. Black lives matter, no justice, no peace. I know that we can overcome because I had a dream, a dream we tore this racist, broken system apart at the seams. Sometimes it seems like we've reached the end of the road. We've seen cops and judges sleep together wearing long white robes and they put their white hoods up, try to take the black hoods down and they don't plan on stopping till we're all in the ground, till we're dead in the ground or we're incarcerated cause prison's a big business form of enslavement plantations that profit on black folks in cages they'll break our backs and keep the wages it's outrageous that there's no place we can feel safe in this nation not in our cars not at the park not in subway stations not at church the pool the store not asking for help not walking down the street so we've got to scream and yell hands up don't shoot i can't breathe Black lives matter, no justice, no peace. I know that we can overcome because I had a dream, a dream we tore this racist, broken system apart at the seams. If you steal cigarellos or you sell loose cigarettes or you forget your turn signal, will they see your skin as a threat? Will they kill you and then smear you and cover it up and lie? Will they call it self-defense? Will they call it suicide? Hands up, don't shoot, I can't breathe. Black lives matter, no justice, no peace. I know that we can overcome because I had a dream, a dream we tore this racist, broken system apart at the seams. And if the altars are torn down, we'll keep on placing flowers for the boy whose body was in the road for more than four hours. We will honor the dead of every age and every gender because we can't just have it be the brothers' names that we remember. 
black boys with skateboards and black boys with hoodies and little black girls who are on the couch sleeping and all of the black trans women massacred too many black folks killed and brutalized too little justice served after the lynchings of our people by the murderous police who stand like hunters round their prey gasping helpless in the street feet from the teen girl that they tackled and locked handcuffed in the car right by her 12 year old brother dying and no one did CPR hands up don't shoot I can't breathe black lives matter no justice no peace I know that we can overcome because I had a dream, a dream we tore this racist, broken system apart at the seams. That was the amazing Kimia Dawson. If you want to hear her full acapella song, you can find it at theintercept.com slash podcasts. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Tal Malad. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Our music was composed by DJ Spooky. Special thanks to our apocalyptic Donald Trump, Anthony Atamanik. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. people protesting one day after the president is elected is absolutely unprecedented. Losers. Yeah, I know. Sad. (laughs) Very sad. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.